and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than simply their cholesterol and their weight, that we are the integrated sum of complex parts, what I call the four I's, information, inputs, infrastructure, and insight. Our stories live in our bodies. We begin by acknowledging the inseparability of mental and physical health. I'm here to help people tell their story, to find out, are they okay? And for you, the listener, to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com newsletter and to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today, I'm joined by the incredible journalist and author, Carrie Blakinger. Carrie came out this June with her first book called Corrections in Ink, where she traces her path from star figure skater to struggling addict and sex worker to prison inmate, and finally to her current life as a journalist and investigative reporter working for the Marshall Project and helping reform our criminal justice system. Carrie, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for the generous introduction there, but it is daunting that you mentioned a first book as if implying that there will be a second. (laughs) There is going to be a second book, my friend. I mean, whether it's you (laughs) telling me what happens in your current life or whether you write it for a general audience, I think people want to know more about you. The story that you have told in your book is riveting and it's juicy. Let's acknowledge that that people want to read about the young girl who was this competitive athlete raised by highly educated, Ivy League educated parents who struggled with an eating disorder and trauma, who then channeled her obsessiveness in athleticism to an addiction to heroin and then sort of quote unquote overcame the challenges and then became this writer. I think the book has really grabbed people's attention because it's fascinating. But to me, there's actually more to you than meets the eye. And I'd love to talk about what you and I talked about pre-interview, about how it's sort of convenient for someone looking at your story from an outside standpoint to say, what an interesting arc, what a survivor, what a trooper, what a kind of quaint story of someone struggling and then getting better. And then the natural question is, how did you do it? That's the question I asked you, which I think you're asked perhaps too much. I'm talking way too much. So tell me, (laughs) tell me, what is it that you want to say when someone asks you, how did you survive that? Or how did you overcome as if there's some formula we we can all follow? I think that so often people think that because someone has survived something, like I have some secret key, some answer, you know, and it's obviously so much more individualized than that, which I think is something that a lot of the self-help treatment options over the years often don't really fully embrace the idea of how individualized and different recovery and path to recovery can look and how the sort of array of conditions that recovery can really include. That's one thing that I struggle with because on the one hand, when people are like, my 
cousin, my friend, my daughter is struggling with addiction. Can you just talk to them? And it's like, I, I understand your pain and I want to help, but I'm, first of all, not a licensed professional of any kind. I literally don't qualify for pretty much any licenses with a felony. <laughs> but, you know, it's also just like, there's not a silver bullet here. You know, I think that some people think somebody who has survived this is willing to be open about it, has clearly thought about it a lot and writes about these sorts of things for a living is going to have those answers. It doesn't mean that I do. I have some thoughts. They may or may not be helpful to individuals, but that's such a hard question to answer. Sort of, And it's also interesting. I think that sometimes even when I answer that question, they don't like what they hear. They didn't get the answer, the slice of genius they wanted. And I've seen that a lot in some of the comments in response to my book that people somehow thought this would just explain addiction. Right. Why people get addicted. And I've seen some of the comments that I thought were really interesting that there was a few people on, you know, like Amazon, Goodreads, that type of thing, who were saying things like, great book, but she didn't do anything to explain how she became addicted to heroin. And I was like, did we read the same book? Like, I can't read the book for you. I cannot do all the work here. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's so interesting, Carrie. And I see this in my practice as a physician as well, right? People want an answer. They want a path. They want a one, two, three step guide to managing struggle, whether it's an addiction or leaving a hard relationship or just making any change in their life. And I think what's so beautiful and honest about your book is that you're not giving a prescription. You're not saying, do what I did and you'll be okay. Because at the end of the day, as you have said so eloquently, and this is why it takes a book and not just a a meme, is that it's going to depend on the person and it's going to depend on the level of insight you have about your own struggle, the level of supports you have. I mean, you talked very elegantly about how fortunate you were to have Suboxone when you were in prison to help you manage withdrawals from heroin, whereas not everyone has access to that. Not that that's alone the key to your path to recovery, but I think it's human nature to want to say, oh, number one, wow, that person is really struggling and that's not me and I'm going to read about it to confirm that I'm better off than that person. I think that's a natural human instinct. And number two, for someone who's struggling and may identify with you in the book to say, okay, what's her secret? And can we please put that in a jar? And then can I pour it into my coffee and drink it down? I think also to be like, oh, this is where things went wrong for her. This is how she became addicted to heroin. So if everyone can just not do that, you know, I think, I think that's what people are saying when they say that, you know, I didn't fully explain how I became addicted to heroin. I mean, and to be clear for listeners who haven't read the book, I really did. I did spend a decent number of pages out of the 336 pages of this book. I, I spent a decent amount of space walking people up to how that happened. So I actually did explain it in detail. And I think that the people who said I didn't, it's because they didn't hear something that could translate to an easy preventative. I think you're right. I think that people want the story. I think it's human nature. They want to see, okay, where did she go wrong so that I can make sure I don't go wrong? Or in the case of parents worrying about their kids, given the opioid crisis that's only exacerbated and accelerated during the pandemic, how can I make sure my kid doesn't face that? 
Can you walk us through, Carrie, the story of getting addicted to heroin and walk us through what it looked like? And, you know, I'm grown up enough and experienced enough to not intentionally trigger people's traumas. And I think, as you said in your book and in your writing, doing the job you do, you're kind of living in your trauma again and again and again, seeing what people are going through, similar to what you went through. But if you're willing to tell me what, how did, how did it happen? Growing up, I was a competitive figure skater. I skated pairs, which is where, you know, the guy throws you around. You know, skating was sort of my whole life. I would leave school at 10 or 11 every day and go to the rink to train. And I would stay there until like five or six at night. This was my whole identity. It was my sort of whole vision for my future. It was my social circle. It was sort of the yardstick by which I measured myself. Then when I was 17, after we competed at nationals twice, my pair partner decided to branch out and find another partner. And this is a sport where there are so many more women than men. He could find a partner the next day or pretty immediately. And for me, it could be weeks or months or never. As weeks turned into months and it became apparent that I was probably going to have to take at least a season off, I really started falling apart. I felt like my life was over. And, you know, at that point, I was, I would say a pretty volatile teen. I mean, I know teens are volatile in general. I think I was pretty volatile even for a teen. You know, I'd been in an intense perfectionist sport and I'd been struggling pretty intensely with eating disorders. I was extremely depressed, at times suicidal. The one thing that seemed like the sort of glue that was holding me together fell apart. And I didn't really have the capacity or the support systems to handle that. So I started doing drugs that summer. I went to Harvard Summer School because I think my parents thought that that would be the thing that would set me in a different direction and I would sort of stop unraveling. And instead, it meant that at the point that I was beginning to fall apart, I suddenly for the first time had basically complete freedom. I went from this very strict, scheduled, highly supervised environment to just like a normal teen. I ended up diving pretty quickly into drugs. There was no like gateway drug. It wasn't like, oh, I did pot and then like, oops, you know, suddenly I'm doing harder stuff. Like I was in a very purposely destructive place. Like I was intentionally being self-destructive about it. I was essentially sort of one step from suicidal. I was doing any sort of like self-harming without actually taking the full step of killing myself. I just didn't really care if that self-harm had those consequences. I think I smoked pot once and then tried ecstasy once and then sort of immediately went to heroin. Things accelerated pretty quickly from there. And within a few months, I was living on the street and doing sex work. Then for the next nine years, I sort of off and on I was mostly on. I was going to say off and on doing drugs. It was mostly on. <laughs> yeah. Um, Let me interrupt you to ask you something. It's interesting that you talked about there's no, there wasn't a gateway drug. It was just like straight into the hard stuff. Is it too convenient and sort of tidy to say as someone myself who sees a lot of people who have experienced trauma and loss and who don't know how to handle those feelings, how to, where to put those feelings? Is it too cute to say that you were looking for something to kind of numb pain? I think most people who... I think it was about self-harm more than escape. Interesting. Yeah. I actually didn't quite relate to it when people would talk about, you know, doing drugs to feel numb. Mm. 
I don't think that's where I was coming from with it at that point. There are some things it made me numb to. I think doing drugs was the first time that I truly didn't give a fuck about my weight. And I think that was probably the first time that I could experience weirdly a more normal relationship with food because I just didn't care. If you're a figure skater in the way that you were and you are being watched and wearing those sort of glittery skin tight outfits, that's a whole separate conversation on its own. Like I'd love to have a podcast just about the like garments that people wear and figure skating and you're under intense pressure and your schedule is, is what it was. And it's a pretty intense field and you're intense about it already. Thinking about your weight is sort of an occupational hazard, I think, of that sport. And so I can imagine, don't let me put words in your mouth, but I can imagine it feeling pretty darn liberating to not obsess about that for like a minute. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, that was not the reason that I got into drugs, but it was after I got into drugs. I sort of, after the fact, realized that, geez, this is the first time I haven't cared about this at all. The other thing about skating in terms of eating issues is it's not just about the perception and, and about like worrying about, you know, do I look too heavy in this? That's only a sort of small component of it. The other thing about weight in a sport like skating is that when you develop hips and boobs, your body is less aerodynamic. It is harder to rotate. Like this is like a literally just like a logistical mechanical thing too. So it's not like you're just sort of thinking about other people's perceptions and expectations. You're also thinking about like the reality of how this is going to affect your jumping. And on the one hand, if you eat so little that you're too weak, you're not going to jump well. But on the other hand, if you eat sort of a normal amount and go through puberty, like that's going to impact your jumping. It's interesting to me, you talk about that it wasn't like an attempt to numb uncomfortable feelings. It was more self-destruction, which suggests, you tell me, that it was also like a, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be around. I don't deserve to be on this planet kind of feeling. I mean, again, do not let me put words in your mouth. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it was sort of like being passive suicidality. Right. This was my identity. This was the only thing that my life was about. And that's not there. What the fuck is the point of me being here? Right. It really actually kind of makes sense. We're all really fragile. We're all really vulnerable. Like life is hard. It doesn't matter who you are. And that if you aren't fortunate enough or just born with intrinsic coping skills and tools and emotional bandwidth and distress tolerance, life can be really brutal. And it is for a lot of people. And this is not me telling something you don't already know. I'm just reflecting on the fact that, again, when you pull the curtain back on most human beings, it's not sunshine and roses. There's struggle. It's also not to say that life sucks. I mean, life is beautiful. Life is wonderful. But I think one of the reasons it can be wonderful is because there's struggle and there's adversity and we gather the strength to deal with what we, we need to deal with. And clearly for you, it sounds like you were at this extremely vulnerable place in your life like hormonally, age-wise, and then you had this big trauma and bam, you found yourself addicted to heroin. The numbing, I would imagine, again, please don't let me put words in your mouth. My, my kids accuse me of doing that. When you're a sex worker, like you kind of got to numb out, I'm, I'm guessing, right? Yes. But in those instances, I wasn't necessarily high at the time. So I wasn't necessarily able to be numb while I was doing oh. sex work because you know, you're doing the sex work to get the money to get the drugs. Right. So you're often not high at the time. And it's also, there's a lot of guys who don't 
want someone to be visibly high and don't want to pay for that. I more sort of just dissociated. That's it. I mean, that's like a self-numbing, right? I mean, it's not conscious. I don't I don't know. It was intentional. I mean, I would count the stars or the ceiling tiles. Like I would count whatever it was that I was looking at. That was my coping mechanism was to sort of, you know, dissociate the space out and count the stars. And I wrote this in my book, like the first trick I did, like I remember it that I was counting the stars in the sky, but thinking back, I feel like there's no way I could have seen them. You know, I was inside some dude's car. I can't have been able to see the stars, but I did that so often. That is how I remember it. It honestly makes me so sad to think about you having to put yourself in that situation again and again and again. Do you have empathy for that girl, that person that you were at the time? I mean, do you feel sad for her? Do you feel like, oh, that was just a means to an end? I mean, yeah, it's interesting. Like, you know, how do I think of her? Because typically when I think of her, I'm thinking of her in the first person through my own eyes and my own memories. But I think the first time that I really was able to look back at young me and see her as an outsider was after writing the book and rereading through it. And then she's a person on a page. Then I was like, this was a lot. Like, there's some really dark in here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it sort of didn't hit me the totality of it until I put all these experiences like sort of back to back and lined them up and was looking at it almost as an outsider. Do you think that the storytelling itself and the book writing itself was part of your process? I mean, you did it. It is part of your life. Like, why'd you write the book? I don't think it was part of any sort of healing process because this is coming like 10 years after, mm. you know, I've revisited a lot of these stories. I've told them again. The other thing is for years now, my day job has been covering prisons. I'm listening to people who have these same traumas. In some cases, I'm interviewing guys who, you know, have been on the other side of it. They've been creating these traumas. So I don't think it was part of like a healing process for me. And on top of that, I was like writing it during the pandemic. <laughs> I was writing this like in most of like 2020 and 2021. And I can't think of anything that would have felt like less healing to write at that point. Right. <laughs> so I got the book deal in like end of 2019. And I was going to start in the beginning of 2020. And I had like three or four chapters in and then the pandemic hit and I stopped writing because I was like, we're all going to die. There's not going to be anybody to read a book. Why am I going to waste my last months on the planet writing a book that no one will be alive to read? And so I stopped. And then in like July of 2020, I was like, ah, we're all still alive. <laughs> oh my gosh. Crap, I got to write this book. I don't think it was part of a healing process, but I hope that it is something that other people get something out of. I don't know if it will be healing to other people. I've, I've had a few people tell me that it was which is almost hard for me to wrap my head around as dark as it is. I'm going to guess it's more than a few people. You're now spending your time advocating for human rights of prisoners through reporting for the Marshall Project. And it sounds like, you know, based on your book and talking to you, that the time you spent in jail opened your eyes to the systemic problems of our criminal justice system. And the mistreatment of prisoners. And I'm a big believer myself that people like you who are dealing with mental health challenges and addiction, substance use disorder, belong more in the hands of rehabilitation programs and with people to help support you through recovery and not in jail. To me, one of the challenges of our criminal justice system is the same challenge we face in other spheres of society. We don't understand mental health well, 
we think that there's mental health and there's mental illness. And if you're caught with heroin, like you were in your senior year at Cornell, you belong in jail because that's illegal. When actually you might've benefited more from getting the help you needed emotionally, physically. You can't punish someone into having better mental health. You said it. Can we just say that again for the cheap seats here? Yes. <laughs> yes. You cannot punish someone into having better mental health. And I think that that is the premise of a lot of incarceration, not just people that are being incarcerated for drug possession or drug trafficking or whatever. I mean, there's a lot of people whose crimes are driven by mental health problems or that occur because they're intellectually disabled or, you know, in some cases are crimes of circumstance, people that came from places with very little opportunity. None of those things is actually something you can punish away. That's not to say that I like sort of fundamentally don't believe in punishment or something, but it's just that this particular tool of incarceration, when it's applied in this way, at least, is not improving public safety. If your expectation is that you put people behind bars and hope that the result is that they then stop committing crimes, other than the sort of immediate incapacitation effect of prison, which it's not that people are necessarily incapacitated from committing crimes if the crimes you're talking about are drug addiction, because there's plenty of drugs in prison. So you're actually not incapacitating them from that crime. But other than the immediate like incapacitation effect, in the longer run, when we think about public safety, you know, if you put people in prison and that does not improve their mental health and you do not give them the tools to reenter society better equipped to succeed and you instead undermine their dignity and their humanity for years, there's a cost to that. And I know that a lot of people think about incarceration in terms of rehabilitation versus punishment and how much money and resources are we willing to spend on rehabilitation and how much should this be just a really stark living environment for the sake of punishment. This is sort of in, you know, southern areas where I live now in Texas. You see really bare bones, unidentifiable, moldy food. There's no air conditioning, even though it gets up over 110 degrees in some of these units and people have died of heat stroke. You know, some of the medical care stories are just horrifying. And a lot of people, when I write about these things, will say, don't do the crime if you can't do the time. I think that fundamentally misunderstands what, quote, the time entails. But aside from that, it's not just about the punishment. It's about, at the bare minimum, we expect that prisons should improve public safety. And as they are envisioned now, they don't do that. They don't create people who are going to be better community members upon their release. I think about that a lot when we're talking about rehabilitation and what prison does or doesn't do in that respect. Amen. And thank God you are advocating from the vantage point and position you're in because we all have mental health. You cannot punish someone out of having mental health issues. You cannot tell someone not to have mental health issues. And as you just eloquently said, the time spent in prisons for many people is dehumanizing and causes its own harm. And if you don't give that person the support, the structure, the tools they need to survive when they're out, what have we really done? I wonder if you could describe the solitary confinement you had and experienced in prison, because that to me was a really, really raw description of 
what sounds like torture. I want to hear what that was like. I mean, people do these yoga retreats or these silent retreats, you know, for like two days without their iPhones. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't go like two hours without being on Twitter, unfortunately, for my mental health. <laughs> tell me about solitary. Okay, relatable. <laughs> tell, right. Tell me about solitary confinement. I mean, I really mean that. Like, that sounds like the most dehumanizing experience. After I got out, I've had a lot of people say, oh, I wouldn't mind solitary that much. I like spending time alone. <laughs> yeah, um, time alone, quote unquote. I mean, solitary is not like spending time alone. It's like being buried alive because it's really hard to sort of impress upon someone the difference when it's not voluntary. You know, I think some people must have some sense of that after the pandemic and lockdowns. But of course, during lockdowns and the pandemic, you know, everybody could go outside. Like that was not legally banned anywhere to set foot out the door. And, you know, the U.S., you could go out and you could take a walk or whatever. You had the internet, you had phone calls. A lot of people had their pets. They were around their families. It was hard on a lot of people, but, you know, you still had fundamental kinds of human connection. You know, when I walked into solitary, when I walked in the cell, it was, you know, it's a cell like the size of your bathroom and it was sort of bright neon white and there was nothing. You know, I didn't have my property with me, so I didn't have some collection of books or crossword puzzles. There was no clock. I didn't have a watch. You have no phone access. There was a little window slit at the top of the cell to see out. But if you stood up on the bunk to look out of it, you know, you'd get yelled at. You know, sometimes we'd try to talk by screaming to the people in the next cell. But if the guards heard you, you'd get yelled at for that, too. I started just sort of losing time very quickly. And it was almost like I was in some sort of fugue state, not sure if I was awake or asleep. I think it was sort of after I got out and after I started covering it and talking to more people that were in solitary and sort of really thinking through why it was so dehumanizing. I think it comes down to that, you know, solitary really takes away two of the very fundamental things about what it means to be human, because one of them is existing in relation to other people. You know, you define sort of self versus other. And that is partly contingent on there being other and there being other people you can interact with and talk to, even if you're not a people person, there's still some amount of interaction that occurs. And then I think the other thing about how we see ourselves and define ourselves and understand ourselves as people is the choices we make, the actions we take, you know, the agency that we have in our lives. And sure, there are still some choices you can make in solitary. You can go on hunger strike or you can eat your food. Like there are some choices, but your agency is so limited. I think that solitary fundamentally eats away at two of the really key things about what it means to be human. And I think that is really disorienting, not just in a sort of immediate sense, but in a sort of like bigger existential sense. It's also, you know, we are not as humans designed to live like that. You know, there's plenty of research about how that has lasting trauma and lasting effects. And I think that some of these things, some people sort of intuitively understand when I talk about solitary, but I think there's a lot of people for whom it is really hard to actually imagine putting yourself in that place and what that would be like. And mind you, I only was in there for a matter of days, a few different times. And, you know, now as a reporter, I cover death row and I cover Texas prisons where people are in solitary for years or decades. Your insights like resonate so much with me that this notion of humanity and our humanness being defined by two important things. One, 
our relationships to others, which does provide sort of a way to sharpen our own self-worth and self-understanding. And then agency. Without choices, without thinking we have control over our own bodies and minds, dying is bad, but what about not living? What about not being valued as a human? And it's one thing that has driven me personally to work in an advocacy way on COVID policies as I have during the pandemic, because what we deprive people of during the pandemic, and it wasn't solitary confinement, lockdowns was not the same as what you went, went through. But, you know, there's a time and a place for, you know, draconian measures when COVID was, you know, this unknown beast in the panicked spring of 2020. But when you take, for example, children, particularly children in marginalized communities, and you take away relationships, social interactions, and you take away their sense of agency, and you put rules around them that don't necessarily make sense to even them, it takes away people's humanity. And then, you know, to me, it's no surprise that we have this adolescent mental health crisis that only has accelerated during the pandemic. It resonates so much with me, not just vis-a-vis COVID, but just with when I think about patients, people want to know, of course, what their cholesterol is. They want to know what their blood type is. They want to know what their COVID test result is. But if people don't have agency in their life or the sense of agency, or they don't have a sense of who they are in healthy relationships, what are we really doing by putting someone on Lipitor? What are we really doing by recommending weight loss to prevent diabetes? It's like if you don't have those basic fundamental human assets, kind of what's the point? And I wonder if that is in part what you felt like you lost when you were a kid, like an agency and relationships. I don't know. Again, I'm like heavily avoidant of like trying to pigeonhole you and bucket you and like describe for you your experience because that is not my job. It's also not what I want to do. But I also wonder if that solitary confinement and like the things that were taken away from you are kind of a metaphor for what got you there in the first place. I think that that sort of loss when my skating career fell apart was more about completely losing the thing around which I defined myself. Like I, at 17, saw myself as a figure skater. And that was my identity. I think that that sort of loss of identity is something that, you know, I could navigate better now. Like it wouldn't be fun, but, you know, sure, I can navigate it better at 38 if I have some major change in who I am, like I'm not a reporter anymore or something like that. But I think at 17, I was very badly equipped to handle that. I think that some of that was more about fundamental loss of identity and understanding of who I was. I mean, that's sort of how I've thought of framing that initial loss more than about a loss of agency. Although I guess there are some ways in which losing skating was a loss of agency, because even though skating, my whole life in skating was so... Um, restricted and regulated. When I was on the ice, that was a time in which I had a lot of agency. I was in control to an extent, but I was also doing pairs. So like I'm being thrown around. The other thing about skating is that sure you might have agency, but like that doesn't mean that it works out or that you succeed. Like you can try to land a triple Lutz for years and just never get it. And that's that. That's the limit to your career, you know? So it's agency, but with a lot of built-in failure. If you had a parent who was listening to this right now and had a child who was, had a singular focus, like athleticism or sports or art or something, would you tell that parent, try to make sure your kid has other outside interests, make sure they're not putting other eggs in the one basket, to the extent that parents can make sure any of this. You can't tell Johnny soccer player, like, hey, make sure you're not hanging your hat on this soccer dream. I wouldn't say that. 
I mean, I don't think I'd even necessarily have said that for me going back. I mean, I don't think that there's a sort of broad generalization that can be made there. I think for some people, having an obsessive singular focus can be a very positive driving force. I mean, I do that now. I, I sort of joke that it's not so much that I you know, got sober, it's that I've replaced skating with heroin and then I replaced heroin with journalism, with writing. And that's fine. I'm now much more cognizant if somehow, you know, journalism and writing all falls apart and nobody reads written words anymore. You know, I understand that I can find something else to pour myself into. It sounds like you know yourself well enough to know that you are a dog with a bone with whatever it is. Yeah, totally. I mean, I do think the one thing that I would say to parents that have kids that are in a really intense obsessive sport like that is I did not realize until much later how significant the loss of normal social interactions was. Obviously, I didn't have time to do a lot of the normal kid things, but there are things that I could have done. You know, my parents are pretty strict, so I didn't go to, you know, parties. I didn't do a lot of just normal social activities, even in situations where I really would have had time to. And I think it was easier for them to continue to be strict because I was involved in skating. So that was taking up so much of my time. So I wasn't sort of investing time in exploring boundaries in other ways. Yeah, I think that's really meaningful. I mean, it just makes intuitive sense to have a more diverse portfolio of supports and interests and things. And if you're not socializing with other kids your age who aren't singularly focused, you're not going to pressure test your personality. You're not going to pressure test your boundaries. And not even just like about having other interests, like literally just when by the time like skating was done for me, like I really did not have the normal social skills that, you know, a 17, 18 year old would like I had just not learned how to interact well in social situations because so much of it had been with coaches or with a pair partner. You know, it's a very solitary sport. You're skating around alone on the ice a lot. You know, you interact with other kids between sessions, but it's not like a team sport. A lot of the relationships in a sport like skating don't quite translate to helping you develop normal social skills in the world outside of the ice rink. What are you doing to maintain your sobriety, your recovery? I mean, I think it sounds like you're pouring your energy and your brain power, which is quite apparently there, into writing and investigative reporting and reforming the system. And actually, let's just acknowledge that not only have you helped a lot of people with your book, sort of, I think, personally, people who struggle with addiction or interpersonal or mental health challenges, I think your work has led to multiple reforms in the system. So what else are you doing? Not that you need to be doing a whole lot, but like, what, what are you doing to maintain your sobriety, your recovery? Like, what is your quote unquote toolkit look like right now? I work a lot, but I also, I run. I'm not a good runner. I'm bad at it. And right now, this time of year in Houston, it is very hard to run at all because it's like over it's 100 degrees. 105 or, yeah. degrees, right. I'm in Houston, so it's extremely humid. But running is something that's been my happy place. That's been my way of decompressing. So I do that. And I'm very lucky that I've been here long enough that I've developed a good group of friends that have become family. I love it. We talked about this before. You're not in the 12-step program. You have your own kind of recovery, which is crafted to your needs and ongoing challenges that inevitably come your way. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm familiar with 12 steps. I did try them some at one point, and I've been through a 12-step rehab at one point before I actually you know, ended up getting sober. So I'm familiar with them. There are parts that I found inspiring and beneficial, but overall, that was not something that ended up becoming part of my path in the long term. I think what you've shown us, Carrie, is that 
I mean, you've taught us a lot, but there's no one size fits all prescription for recovery. There's no formula for overcoming hardship or addiction. And there's no program or person or magic pill to make things better. And the fact that you're honest about that is in and of itself really valuable. People want that answer, but the answer is more honest. You're being true to the fact that it depends on the person and you're also not going to tell other people and look down your nose and tell them like, hey, do what I did because life is beautiful on the other side. I mean, it's impressive. The honesty and authenticity, I think, is what inspires me more than someone who says, follow these 10 steps. And for $9.99, you can get two copies of my audio tapes <laughs> to listen to on your run to recover from your hardship. To assume that our experience is exactly like someone else's and that your process should therefore be modeled by everyone else is not really accurate or, or honest. So I appreciate your being so honest and open. Thank you. And I wish you every success. I want to read your next book. Um, <laughs> I mean, maybe you'll write about something totally different. Like maybe you'll write about like woodpeckers or like well, that seems unlikely. I mean, maybe you'll write something totally different or maybe you won't write a book and you'll enjoy your current work. You know, I think there's some of the things I'm currently working on. There are some things that could be expanded into something that would be book length. I'm still sort of mulling over if any of them is the right idea that I want to throw myself into for the next two or three years, or if I want to do that at all, because, you know, it's like finishing an ultra marathon and being like immediately, you know, the same day, am I signing up for another one? Like, yes, but am I <laughs> like, like, yes. But no, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. I mean, you've been very outcomes focused, certainly in your earliest years. Like maybe it's just being and enjoying the process of writing and doing what you're doing every oh, day. Oh, there's nothing. No, 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 no. Whoever's telling you writing a book is enjoyable is f***ing lying. Okay. <laughs> that is not enjoyable. You have to, I think, believe in the outcome and that it has, you know, whatever your metric for success is, you have to believe in the final product what you finally come out with and that it will do what you intended to do in the world. I am so glad to hear you say that as someone who's pondering writing a book, managed expectations. Carrie, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me today. You're great and you're fun to watch and you're fun to follow on Twitter. And I loved your anecdote of showing up at the Harvard Coop and seeing your, the co-op. We called it the coop. I was at HMS. Harvard yes, Medical. we called it the coop. Yep. And you see your book there on the front table. And that's the same place where you had stolen from. And you went into like an alley and cried. Yes. And I just felt like I was right there with you. Not only because I spent some time at the coop, but also because I can imagine that sort of full circle feeling being like kind of poignant. Thank you for joining me. And uh, I hope we talk again soon. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals, which should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C. Thank you.